Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All About Animals radio show. We are a volunteer-run community radio station dedicated to all animals and those who advocate for them. My name is Nikita Dewan, and today we have Peter Singer as a guest. Professor Singer is a highly acclaimed and influential philosopher and author who has been credited with starting the modern animal rights movement with his work in animal and practical ethics. He has received the Berger Prize for Philosophy and Culture and has established many and published many books, including the 1975 edition of Animal Liberation. He has founded organizations Animals Australia and The Life You Can Save dedicated to helping animals and those in extreme poverty, respectively. And today we're going to be discussing his newest book edition called Animal Liberation Now. I'm really excited to have you here, Professor Singer. How are you today? I'm fine, Nikita. Good to talk to you. Great. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, you know, I've read your book and I think it really just, it was great. It really changed my perspective um, on how I see animals. And I'm curious to understand what was your initial involvement in the field of animal ethics and your inspiration to write the first book itself. Well, my initial background was really my interest in ethics and ethical questions. I uh, was never and still don't really consider myself an animal lover. I'm not a person who, you know, wants to have companion animals around me particularly. Um, but I became aware of the way we treat animals, particularly in order to turn them into the meat that I was then eating. This was in 1970 when I was uh, 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, that just struck me as wrong. And um, although, as I say, I wasn't an animal lover, I was always against cruelty to animals. Every decent person ought to be against cruelty to animals. But I didn't realize that I was participating in this vast and systematic cruelty to animals, uh, essentially to produce them as cheaply as possible for food, um, irrespective of how much that harms them. And, and when I say harms them, I don't just mean killing them. Of course, I knew that. But um, giving them miserable lives by confining them indoors in uh, enormous factory farms, very crowded conditions, completely unsuitable for the nature of the species, um, and really no concern for the well-being of the individual animal at all, uh, just the sort of market pressure to produce the meat or eggs or dairy products as cheaply as possible. Right. And, you know, you mentioned your initial background was in ethics. So can you just give us an overview of what is the animal liberation philosophy and what justifies giving equal consideration to the pain animals feel compared to humans? Right. Uh, so there isn't one animal liberation philosophy, really. Uh, I certainly put forward the views I hold in animal liberation and now more recently, of course, in animal liberation now. Um, but my views fit with my general ethical background, which is uh, utilitarian. That means um, I think that whether an act is right or wrong depends on its consequences for the well-being of all of those who are affected by the action. And by all of those, I don't mean only humans. I mean any beings who are conscious, who are capable of enjoying their lives or conversely capable of suffering, feeling pain and, and having a miserable life. And so uh, that definitely includes non-human animals. Uh, but there are other people like the, the late Tom Regan who 
argued on the basis of animal rights. There's a Kantian philosopher, Christine Korsgaard, who um, has adapted Kantian ethics to reach a similar conclusion. I, I think the most important uh, link, the most important common factor between all the philosophers who write in a positive way about animals, and there are many of them now, is that they don't think that ethics is just limited to human beings. They don't see any justification for saying uh, that the boundary line of our species is the boundary line of those beings who matter morally, you know, who count, who have a moral status, uh, where it makes a difference what we do to them. Uh, and so once you once you can see past that species boundary and include animals and you want to take an ethical approach to them, then you know, almost any defensible ethical position is going to say, uh, yes, you have to include animals and you ought not to be treating them in the ways we do, uh, for example, as I say, in, in factory farms. Right. And you talk about, you know, giving equal consideration to animal interests and how it's not about the like how um, equality has never really been based on like factual equality, like actual equality in our abilities, because many people argue that, you know, humans are smarter than animals. So that's why we have um, rights that they don't. So how would you comment on um like the difference how when people use intelligence as an argument um, for speciesism, which, you know, you describe as a form of prejudice, uh, discrimination against different species. Yes, well, I, I think uh, Jeremy Bentham, who was um, the founder of utilitarian philosophy in the late 18th and early 19th century, um, put the answer to the question you've just asked very well. Um, he he was actually writing after the French Revolution, and he noticed in one of his writings or mentioned that the French had discovered uh, that the color of a person's skin is not a reason for enslaving them because the mm -hmm. French revolutionaries uh, freed the slaves in the in the French colonies. Um, and, and he just goes on and after noticing that as a little footnote saying that perhaps one day people will discover that uh, the number of, of legs or uh, whether you have a tail or uh, whether you have fur, are also not good reasons for abandoning um, an, a being, a sensitive being, he says, to uh, the caprice of a tormentor. Um, and, and then he uh, obviously, you know, thinks about the issue that you just mentioned and says, uh, the question is not, can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? Mm -hmm. um, and then he sort of imagines, I, I think, an, an objection to that and says, you know, Suppose, suppose that that um, uh, wasn't the case. Suppose you think that whether you can reason or talk is the morally crucial dividing line. Um, well, uh, a dog or a horse is actually more capable of reasoning and more capable of, of conversing than a baby of a, a day or a week or a month old. Uh, and so, right. as he points out, if we really wanted to say that the capacity to reason or talk is uh, what draws the line of beings who can't, then um, infants would not can't. Um, uh, some people might say, well, they have a potential to talk, which is true, but um, people with profound intellectual disabilities might never have a potential to, to talk or to reason, but we still don't think that we should treat them the way we treat animals today. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that makes complete sense. So I think like I understood from your book that like the characteristic of of intelligence is not what always, you know, upholds human humans above non-human animals. So why should it be used as a basis that their interests um, matter more? And I think it's interesting, um, as you just mentioned, like drawing parallels to racism and sexism, because, um, you know, as it has implications about how we think about animals, because some of the justifications behind speciesism include, you know, we are the superior race, or this is how the system has always been. So why should we change? But you know, we use those arguments to also justify racism or, you know, cases of slavery in the past. So I think uh, it makes us think about how it extends to animals as well. And that's quite um, right. And that, that's kind of, in a way, the point of using the term speciesism to, to make that parallel with things that um, most people will reject, like uh, racism and, and sexism. Uh, and just as, you know, the parallel here is, in all of these cases, there was a, a dominant, powerful group, which mm-hmm. attributed to itself um, rights over the other ones who were less powerful and who the dominant group regarded as inferior or lower moral status in some way. And of course, we can see through those justifications for racism and, and sexism today, but um, we ourselves are really doing the same thing towards animals when we draw the boundary at the uh, boundary of our species for whether we take seriously the interests of a being or, uh, as you said, give equal consideration to the interests of a being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also, I think all those cases highlight an in-group and out-group mentality where, we're, where we sort of exclude um, other groups as the other. So um, like we've learned about that in psychology and everything. So I also wanted to, um, just based on what we've discussed, what prompted you to write a second um, updated edition of the book? Have, ha- would you say that the target audience or the purpose of the book has evolved since then? Uh, well, the, the, the target audience is certainly a different generation um, yeah. and they've changed in a variety of ways, of course. But for me, what was most important was to keep the book relevant to what we're doing to animals today. And a book that was first written in 1975 and then the last full revision was 1990, um, that's not able to describe the way animals are treated today. So I was concerned that um, a new generation of readers would say, well, what's this got to do with where I am now? Mm -hmm. Um, And they might think of the book as having historical interest um, They might read it for the ethical arguments, which we've just been discussing, which I don't think have changed. But um, in terms of the two long chapters that I have that describe uh, one of them, uh, the experiments done on animals, which uh, are often very painful and and quite pointless for us anyway, um, and and factory farming, uh, those two chapters needed complete updating because things have changed in that respect. And I wanted to show that the problems haven't gone away despite those changes. Uh, and um, I also wanted to talk a bit about the progress that the movement has made because right. there has been some progress uh, you know, in, in some countries, not everywhere. And and that's encouraging and that's uh, good and something we must work with. But um, also, you know, in some respects, things have got worse, uh, partly because in countries like China where people have become more prosperous, 
they are buying more meat. And so China is producing a lot more meat and has vast factory farms that it didn't have in 1975. So uh, I needed to basically update that and, and inform the readers what the situation is and what we still need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you discussed, you said that some the ethical argument has mainly stayed the same. So I was wondering, like, what about the counter arguments? What would you say is one of the most, uh, the strongest or most common arguments that oppose the, I guess, the animal liberation philosophy? And how would you address them? Well, I don't, I don't think there are any good arguments in defense of factory farming, for example. Um, you know, not even some people believe that somehow we need this in order to feed the growing world population. But, but it's actually a, a wasteful system in terms of food production. We are taking a lot of crops that we grow, which are good nutrients and contain both calories and uh, protein, and mm-hmm. we feed them to animals and uh, we actually reduce, in some cases quite dramatically reduce, the amount of food value that we get uh, from it because when we then kill the animal, let's say you're talking about um, a, a cow that's we fed on, on grains and now we're killing for beef, um, mm-hmm. we get back only uh, something like 3% of the protein that we put into the cow. So it's uh, it, you know, that's a really bad objection, the idea that we need factory farming to, to feed the world's population. Um, the the arguments uh, that I struggle with are ones that are, uh, accept the case against factory farming, but um, reject the case against being vegetarian or vegan uh, by saying that we can obtain uh, animal products from animals who are well treated. And, um, you know, whether you consider that an argument uh, for or against animal liberation will depend on uh, your own position and, and how far you think we ought to go. Uh, and I know there are some people in the animal movement who think that uh, it's just wrong to kill animals at all, even if they've had wonderful lives and been killed painlessly. Uh, now, I'm less sure about that. I think uh, you know, there's some interesting philosophical questions about whether it's better to live um, and have a good life and, and then die prematurely than it is to not live at all. And so that's why I don't claim that I can show that it is wrong to uh, rear animals and give them good lives and kill them painlessly and, and then eat them. But in practice, that's a very, very small proportion of all the animals we raise, unfortunately. So um, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, really the animal liberation movement could be targeting uh, those systems like factory farming, which cause such immense suffering to a vast number of animals. Um and, you know, if there are some people who still occasionally eat some meat that they can get from animals who have good lives, um, I think we should uh, welcome the fact that they don't support factory farming and uh, not waste our energy in uh, attacking them or trying to criticize them uh, because we should focus on the the much worse things that are happening at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, you had raised some moral questions about uh, creating life because many people say if there wasn't demand for meat in the first place, then the livestock wouldn't have, like the life wouldn't have been created in the first place. So that's a bit of a, that's a difficult um, argument. 
And just regarding uh, factory farming, would you be able to elaborate a bit more on um, just the reality of modern day factory farming and in what ways it prioritizes economic interests over animal welfare? Yeah, sure. So so let's take chickens because um, of the land, uh, land-based land uh, vertebrates, so not counting fish, chickens are the most numerous of the animals who are factory farmed. Um, you know, we're talking about something like maybe uh, 60 or 70 billion chickens raised worldwide uh, each year. Um, and it's you know, something like eight to nine billion in the United States. Uh, alone, so uh, these these numbers are enormous. Now, what is particularly bad about this? Um, so, pretty much all of these chickens, you know, ninety nine point nine percent probably, are raised indoors in uh, big sheds where they're very crowded, and um, obviously they're not raised in the way that would be natural to them. Um, that is to have a uh, a mother hen around them when they're small, uh, looking after them. Um, they come from a hatchery and uh, they're just dumped on conveyor belts into these big sheds and, and fend for themselves. Um, but on top of that, there's another problem from the fact that they have been deliberately bred to grow as fast as possible. Uh, so the modern chicken is sold at, uh, between six and seven weeks of age so a very young bird but a very large bird for that very young age that's they're, they're getting to that weight that they're sold at um, at least twice as quickly as they would have maybe 50 years ago so that causes problems with their bone formation because their leg bones are not really mature enough to hold the weight of their bodies and so you do get in every block that's raised, although they're very young birds, you get uh, mortality that's in the industry typically around 5%. Uh, and that is these birds, um, their legs may collapse under them and then they can't get to food or water. So they just uh, die of thirst or, or um, starvation because uh, they can't walk anymore once their leg bones have collapsed. And there's no individual attention for these birds. There's, you know, um, 10, 20,000 birds in a single shed. So mm. no one is looking after them individually. Now, another less obvious fact about this is that these birds uh, grow so fast because they've been bred to have an enormous appetite. So they've been bred to basically keep eating a lot. And that's why they put on so much weight so fast. Right. But think about their parents. Right, so their parents obviously have to have the same genes to want to be eat all the time, to be very hungry. But if they were allowed to eat as much as they like, um, they would probably collapse before they got to sexual maturity because you don't get to sexual maturity at six or seven weeks like the, the birds that people eat. Um, they would need to live um, much longer than that, maybe three times as, as long. And um, if they were continuing to eat as much as they wanted, uh, they would get very fat. They might uh, die of heart attacks or something of that sort. Um, and even if they didn't, they probably would not be able to mate just because they would be so large and fat. In fact, mm -hmm. this, this happens with turkeys as well. The American turkey can't mate. And uh, all the turkeys that 
Americans eat at Thanksgiving are the result of artificial insemination, which um, obviously adds expense and the chicken producers don't want to do that. Um, so essentially they, they starve the parents. Um, they Typically they feed them only every second day so that uh, they don't get too fat and so that they can still mate when they're mature. Um, and this is for birds bred to have a huge appetite. This is the real kind of torture to um, prevent them getting food. Uh, and you can see in the farming journals themselves, they say, for example, that these birds will take in a lot of water on the day when they don't get any food. They're just trying to fill themselves. Um, but that can cause health problems to them. So I quote articles saying, well, you have to cut off the water, otherwise they'll drink too much. Um, so that's just you know an example of the attitude of, of factory farmers, uh, their productivity at all costs. Um, don't worry about the welfare of the animals as long as they survive long enough to get to market or as long as the breeding birds survive long enough to reproduce and produce future generations. Um, that's really all they care about. Yeah, and there also seems to be, um, I remember reading a quote in the book that says there's no time to give them any painkiller because that's just not a priority. And um, like when they're de-beaked, they're not given a painkiller, even if they're getting, when they're getting, um, going to the uh, slaughterhouse, um, they're not properly stunned and can be, and can die when they're conscious. And yeah, someone in a similar field um, in factory farming talked about how sometimes they would alter um, the animals, the chickens genes or manipulate their growth hormones in order to increase production. So um, I guess that's just an example of um, prioritizing um, economic interests over their welfare. And um, in your book, you also talk about, you know, boycotting the meat industry. And I was just wondering, how would you respond to a consumer who believes that a single action of stopping to purchase meat would have no impact on the larger industry of factory farming? Because that's a common argument. It's a common argument, but obviously the number of chickens produced is dependent on the number of people buying chickens. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean that there's a you know one-to-one -one ratio. It doesn't mean that if somebody who's been buying chickens stops buying a chicken this week, that there'll be one fewer chicken raised in a factory farm. But um, what we're trying to do is to build a movement of people who are mm -hmm. going to be um, non-consumers of factory farm products, perhaps uh, completely vegan, perhaps vegetarian, um, perhaps just uh, reducitarian, as it's sometimes called, reducing the amount of meat that they eat, um, and perhaps just avoiding factory farm products. So that has to make a difference. And I think the, the situation is, yes, you can't know that your individual purchase uh, prevents chickens from having miserable, or a chicken or a number of chickens from having miserable lives. But what you can know is that it increases the uh, odds that there will be fewer chickens uh, yeah. uh, who are raised. Because, uh, you know, I look at it this way, suppose that the supermarket orders chickens by the by the hundred so it's not sensitive to one more or one fewer chicken being bought but um if the level of purchases falls below a certain number then they'll order a hundred fewer chickens next week uh well maybe the chicken you buy doesn't actually trigger the uh reduction in the number of chickens ordered but if it does you know one in a hundred chickens will then it'll actually reduce the order by 100 chickens and, and that'll feed back to the producers um, 
and uh, with other orders, they will then reduce their production. So, you know, there has to be uh, that kind of relationship between uh, individual purchases and uh, production. Uh, so I think that's still what we ought to do. We are still complicit in supporting the industry uh, if we buy its products. Yeah, definitely. Um, someone's one purchase can definitely have the potential. If they keep purchasing less meat, then it makes sense that they would reach a threshold eventually where the supermarket would order um, less chicken. So um, so like one argument for adopting a vegan diet is obviously to reduce animal suffering and um, to provide more food for the growing world population, as you mentioned, because a lot of land is used to feed the livestock. Um, can you elaborate more on the benefits regarding climate change and just um, the meat industry's connection to that as well? Yes, climate change is another important reason for avoiding meat. Um, and I think a lot of people who are vegan or vegetarian nowadays are at least partly that because they want to reduce the impact that they're having on climate change. And and meat is a major contributor, uh, meat and dairy, I should say, particularly, uh, are major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, something like one-fifth of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from the um, animal production uh, industry. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of this is is methane produced, particularly by ruminant animals like uh uh, like cows, whether beef or dairy, and uh, sheep. Uh, and um, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, uh, particularly in the short term. It's, uh, you know, something like maybe 80 times as potent as carbon dioxide. So even though the amounts of methane produced by the animal industry are not as great as all the carbon dioxide produced by burning fossil fuels, um, it still has a very big effect on climate change. And the other important point about it is it's something we can do something about right now. Mm -hmm. We don't have to wait for new technologies. You know, we don't have to say, oh, we can't get rid of fossil fuels because we don't have uh, electric batteries that are powerful enough to run cars the distance that people want to run them or the electric cars are too expensive. We have to get them, make them cheaper and more accessible. You know, all those things are true in the area of reducing fossil fuel consumption, and they're they're important. But you know, it's really easier to, to shift from a meat-based diet to a vegan diet. Um, that's something that everybody, at least everybody living in a comfortable, affluent society, who can walk into a supermarket and uh, sees a range of plant-based products that are as nutritious or more nutritious than the animal products and, and better for you. Um, everybody in that situation can do that and they can do it right now. So uh, I think it's a really effective way to reduce your greenhouse gas footprint and to make a difference for climate as well as, as, as we were saying, for feeding the world and for reducing the suffering of animals. Yeah, exactly. And um, as you're talking about just um, the role of individual action by the consumers themselves, we're also, you know, playing up, we have responsibility in purchasing products that have been tested on animals like cosmetics and cleaning products. So can you just talk a bit about what are some of the uh, practices of animal testing that causes large amounts of suffering? And are these actually effective or beneficial for humankind? 
Well, there's a lot, you know, in the chapter in Animal Liberation now on research in animals, I talk about a lot of different kinds of research. Um, product testing is certainly one of them. Uh, it has somewhat, it's one of the areas where we have made some progress uh, from the earlier editions of the book, because some of the tests that I described there, for example, the LD50, which stood for lethal dose of for 50% of your sample of animals. Uh, and that was the standard required test in uh, many countries, including the United States, for um, new products coming onto the market that that uh, people might eat or that might take. Or, um, and and obviously that caused an immense amount of suffering to actually feed animals enough so that half of them die from, from what you're feeding them. But um, that test has not been completely abolished, but it has been greatly reduced. But it's still the case that very large numbers, you know, millions of animals uh, are used in in testing, um, maybe as many as 100 million in the United States each year or something close to that uh, uh, in testing and in other research. And um, so they're still being made to get ill from uh, substances that are being fed to them. Um, also, their their housing is pays no attention to their needs. Uh, in fact, there was a study done that long, long ago that shows that uh, rats and mice, which are the largest numbers of animals used in, in research, um, are actually stressed by living in these tiny shoebox-like uh, plastic containers. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, rats and mice um, love to go and, and hide in some little place. Um, that's, you know, their, their more natural environment is to be in shelter, not out in the open, but in these containers they're stressed from because there's really no cover that they can go under uh so so the study showed that that actually distorts the findings of, of research using them that if you used animals who had had better housing conditions you would get different kinds mm -hmm. of results uh and that gets to the point that a lot of these results simply don't translate across to humans uh in animal liberation now i i quote a former director of the United States National Institutes of Health, so the biggest research funding body in, in the country, um, who said, uh, we've got very good at curing cancer in mice, um, but it doesn't translate across to humans. Um, and we really need to get serious about uh, doing clinical studies on humans who have these conditions and uh, trying to test products in ways that are closer to humans and sometimes we can do this without using animals at all like using uh, skin cultures um in vitro cultures and uh, testing products on them uh increasingly we can use ai at least to screen a lot of products and to say we don't need to test this it's obvious that it's going to cause harm to humans uh, or to the animals that we would test it on yeah. uh there's a lot of different things that we can do to try to reduce the number of animals um and i hope eventually eliminate yeah, definitely. I think um, there's definitely a misconception with the public uh, thinking that animals have led to significant medical breakthroughs for humans. So all animal experimentation is therefore justified. But um, I think that would just be a bias because like we've only seen a small percent of animal experiments that have been conclusive and have provided helpful results due to like factors like publication bias, which you mentioned in your book. But that's only a small percent compared to the much larger percent of animal testing, which is ineffective or repetitive, like the Me Too drugs, which you had said 
or provide the same effects, but they're just by different companies. Or a lot of them are just towards trivial products like um, cleaning products. So I guess one of the reasons the public may be uh, ignorant towards the flaws in animal testing is that the scale of these experiments are largely underestimated. Um, but regarding the medical discoveries itself, um, when, if ever, is it justified to use animals for experiments? Well, I think it could be justified if uh, there is some really important, uh, oops, let me start again. I think it could be justified if there is a reasonable expectation that you could find either a cure or an effective treatment for a condition that affects uh, a very large number of, of people, or including a large number of animals. Um, and uh, you can do that in ways that use only a limited number of animals that tries to reduce the suffering inflicted on them as far as is possible. And um, there are no alternatives to using animals. So I think you have to explore all the alternatives first um, before considering whether you would experiment on animals. And uh, then you know, there may be some cases where the expectation of a, an important breakthrough in a major condition is great enough to justify uh, strictly limited use of, of animals. But um, you know, taking the practice as a whole, I think it clearly does a lot more harm than it does good. Um, and it does harm, as I say, not only to animals, but to humans uh, because of the waste of resources that we're using and the misleading results that we get for humans. So uh, I think it's really uh, an industry that needs to be dramatically changed. And uh, I, I think that that is increasingly recognized even by people in the field. And you know, yeah. if you look at the experiments that I describe in the chapter in animal liberation now, you will see that a lot of them, you know, just cannot cannot be justified that they're trying to do things that are really not translating to humans, like research on condition mental health conditions that humans suffer from, which uh, you know, obviously you can't really model properly in in non-human animals because we as humans live in a quite different environment, an environment that is uh, you know, social, and we talk to people about our problems, and uh, it's it's a different kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, I think you had mentioned like uh, the Dre's test doesn't have, also the Dre's test doesn't have like a, a standard or quantitative measurement of its effectiveness. So a lot of animal experiments can also um, be difficult to replicate. So that makes it um, less useful for the scientists. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of experiments that don't replicate um, in different ways. And the, the Dray's test is one of them. That, that's another one that we've made some progress on. That's an eye test uh, in which substances uh, are put into the, directly into the eyes of um, rabbits without any anesthetic uh, being used right. on the animal's eye. Uh, and uh, it produced horrible, some of these substances produced horrible damage and blistering to the eyes of the rabbits. Um, I think the the pressure from the animal movement has dramatically reduced the way in which uh, the number of animals that that is done on and uh, somewhat modified the way in which it's done. So it's not as bad as before. So we can, we can take some credit for that. But um, again, yeah. it's not been completely eliminated.
Yeah, and um, you know, in both factory farming and animal experimentation, there's like I guess there can be some responsibility towards the consumers. Like we're able to boycott products or adopt veganism, and we can make change at like an individual level, and that's really important. But I was just wondering, like, what if we zoom out? Because there's a discussion as to whether it can be effective to use a more, I guess, like top-down approach to address animal interests and equally uh, consider them, uh, give them equal consideration, for example, from a legal perspective. Um, so, for example, several organizations have attempted to petition courts to recognize certain animals, such as Happy and Elephant in the Bronx Zoo, as a quote unquote person so that she can obtain legal rights associated with people, such as that of bodily autonomy. So what is your opinion on this approach um, as to legally extend personhood for some animals? Well, I welcome all approaches that have a chance of uh, advancing the moral status of animals, um, giving them better protection, uh, including better legal protection. So I think that the efforts of uh, people uh, who've been doing this, like um, uh, Stephen Wise of the Non-Human Rights Project, which yep. brought the uh, case for Happy the Elephant uh, that you mentioned, um, and other cases on behalf of uh, chimpanzees and great apes, uh, I think that's definitely worth attempting. And uh, in, in fact, it was quite interesting that when uh, the case of Happy the Elephant went on appeal all, all the way up to the highest court in the state of New York. Yeah. Um, and that court, although it, it did decide against uh, Happy and against the Non-Human Rights Project, um, there were two dissenting judges. So there were two yeah. judges who said that it should have been granted. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that's interesting. And um it shows that the idea that non-human animals are persons uh, is making progress in legal circles. Uh, and in South America, in fact, there have been a couple of cases where the courts have upheld that um, for uh, great apes. I think maybe one was an orangutan and one was a chimpanzee. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I welcome these initiatives. I, I think that, you know, we can... We need to try different ways of changing the situation with regard to animals, and uh, let's let's try different things and see what works. Yeah, definitely, um, it's uh, a great start um, with the two judges, um, you know, seeing merit in the case. And a reason that you know Happy was used um, was because, as, as everyone, as people know, elephants have a very advanced cognitive and social ability ability which is similar to humans so it's implied that maybe there's a stronger reason for her to gain personhood so i was just wondering when expanding our moral circle to animals are there certain animals that we should prioritize first like does the degree of mental capabilities play a role in which animals are considered first or is that a form of speciesism itself should we just focus on if they feel pain and suffering it's not exactly speciesism to, to focus on mental capacities, but um, I still think it's true that what really matters is the capacity to suffer. Um, I think, you know, what the reason for using great apes or, or elephants is that we have a better chance of convincing uh, both courts and the general public that they have the moral and legal status of a person than we would if we were to choose... Um, you know, let's say those laboratory rats or mice that we were talking about before, um, we can, and, and we can see 
better with them, the nature of their lives. We can empathize more with them. Uh, we can understand their complex social relationships. We can see that they have intentions. We can see that they have good memories. Um, uh, and uh, I think that helps to break down the gulf between humans and animals, which is such a problem. So uh, I think it's 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 worth doing if it helps people to see that uh, we're on a continuum with, with other animals. There's not just somehow humans over on one side and all other animals together as if the animals are all alike. Um, there are some animals who are close to us in their mental capacities and in their uh, genes, for that matter, the great apes, um, and others who are more distant from us in one or both of those respects. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's um, it's not speciesist, and if it's a useful tactic, I, I think we should do it, but um, I certainly think that uh, any being capable of suffering is uh, worthy of our consideration. Yeah, definitely, and I think um, you said you know, there are different approaches to making change in the animal rights movement, which we should explore. So um, just when we're talking about the most effective change, I just wanted to touch on how you've also been heavily involved in the effective altruism movement or how to do good better. So to end off, can you just talk about the linkage between effective altruism and animal ethics and how we as listeners can also apply some of those principles to help reduce animal suffering? Right. Well, the, the effective altruism movement is a relatively recent movement, maybe 15 years old now, um, of people who want to do some good for the world, want to reduce suffering, you know, help other humans or help animals. Um, and they want to do it as effectively as possible. Or they think it's important to do it as effectively as possible. That is to, to use whatever time or money you've got to make the world a better place uh, and, and get the most out of that. And, and that's very relevant to the animal movement because if you look at a graph of uh, where does the most money go that people donate to help animals, the answer to that is overwhelmingly it goes to organizations that are um, assisting stray dogs and cats, basically, you know, shelter organizations. Uh, and, you know, look, it's good to want to help dogs and cats, of course, but... Um, when you look at the amount of suffering that is inflicted on the factory farmed animals we were talking about, I talked about the numbers of chickens, for example, in the United States alone, um, something like close to 9 billion chickens, uh, that dwarfs the amount of suffering that um, stray dogs and cats uh, are going through. In fact, it, it dwarfs the total number of dogs and cats in the United States. Um, and of course, only a small percentage of those fortunately are uh, stray or, or or need the assistance of these charitable organisations. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's from the effective altruist point of view, it's misguided to donate to those organisations. You, you will get better bang for your buck if you donate to organisations uh, that are opposing factory farming um, and that are doing that as effectively as possible. And and to do that, you can go to a website called Animal Charity Evaluators and uh, they look at the organizations, they've evaluated a lot of organizations for basically how much good they are doing and how much good they're doing per dollar of donation that they receive. Uh, and you will see that essentially, you know, most of those organizations they recommend are focusing on factory farmed animals. 
because we can make progress in that area. We have been making progress. And, and uh, when you donate to them, you're likely to help far more animals and do much more to relieve animal suffering than if you donate to the shelter organizations. Yeah, definitely. And then I had, I remember I had done an effective altruism course and we had talked about your book and the course was also talking about um, how like impartiality is important in terms of who we can help, um, like not maybe prioritizing people just because they're in your country or certain groups. So I guess that would apply to um, how we extend our moral consideration to animals as well. And um, yeah, I think we can definitely learn um, from what you said about helping factory farm animals and focusing on um, the industries which largely inflict animal suffering. So I wanted just to thank you so much for all the work you're doing. It's really inspiring and it's definitely, you know, changed my mentality. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, Nikita. It's been good talking to you. And uh, thanks for making people alert to all of these uh, important issues about animals. I really appreciate what you're doing with uh, the program. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye.